Welcome to Equity Is, a podcast from the School District of Philadelphia's Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. This podcast is about cultivating prosperity and liberation for students and staff. We do this by showcasing and debriefing on the great equity work that is being done throughout the School District of Philadelphia community. With each episode, we hope to cover topics that will create pathways for marginalized populations in our district by removing barriers, increasing access and inclusion, building trust, and creating a shared culture of social responsibility and organizational accountability. I am your host, Tori Potenza, the Program Manager for the Office of DEI. This year, the Equity Is podcast will be launching a new series, Equity Snapshots. These are shorter episodes that delve into specific equity concepts and are led by our equity training specialists who provide equity learning opportunities throughout the district. This year, equity training specialists will discuss 11 oppressive thematic ideologies. Today, I am joined by Sia and Ryan from our team who will discuss one of these oppressive thematic ideologies with me. This one regarding Latin American communities in the United States. Sia and Ryan, could you both introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Ryan Villanueva. I use he, him pronouns. I'm an equity training specialist in the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. My background is mainly in international education and intercultural communication. And I am Dr. Sia Beckwith. I use she, her pronouns. I'm also an equity training specialist in the office of DEI. My background is in school leadership and leadership development for people of color. We're also lucky enough to be joined by Principal Babuena, who will talk about the recent renaming of her school and also offer her personal perspectives into our topic today. Principal Balbuena, would you mind introducing yourself? My name is Awilda Balbuena. The school was named Sheridan Elementary School since 1899. It's now called Gloria Cáceres Elementary School. This is my 12th year here at the school, and I feel that I am in the school I need to be in. It's my second home, and the community I serve is the community I was born and raised in as well. I identify as Puerto Riqueña, Latina. My parents are both from Puerto Rico. And we were raised in Allentown with very strong Puerto Rican custom. When I would travel to Puerto Rico with my family, they would call me a gringa. Didn't even know what gringa was. I said to them, what does that mean? Oh, you're, you know, a white girl. You know, you're from Allentown. So that was like my first exposure to these nuances. When I would be in Allentown, I would be called a spick. This was back in the late 60s, early 70s. So I didn't know what that meant either. So I felt like wherever I was, I always got the feeling that I didn't belong. And I know that affected how I saw myself. It was really hard to find my way through school, which leads to us having that discussion of these oppressive ideologies. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me today. To begin our discussion, could you give us an idea of what oppressive thematic ideologies are before we go into today's specific topic? Yes, I'm happy to kick us off. It is quite title, oppressive thematic ideologies. So first, let's define oppression. Oppression is the systematic prolonged mistreatment of a group of people. There are a number of different oppressive systems that exist. So racism, 
sexism, homophobia, ableism, xenophobia, anti-indigeneity. Those are just to name a few. So now let's move on to the word ideology. As an ideology is a belief system of principles, ideals that are attributed to a group of people. And there's multiple types of ideologies, right? With political, economic, social. But for our purposes, we're going to talk about racial ideologies, which don't necessarily live in the vacuum. That's, that's when we see some intersections of different ideologies at play. And me and my fellow equity training specialist here in DEI have built a series of professional development sessions that dive deeper into a number of these oppressive ideologies and very excited to be talking about this first one today. Thank you so much for breaking that down. I know that's really helpful for everyone listening, I'm sure. So to get into our topic today... Often people use the terms Latinx and Hispanic to describe people from Latin America, but ultimately these terms are much more complex than that. Could you elaborate on some of the terms used to describe people from these regions of the world? Yeah, happy to. And before I get into it, I just want to first give a disclaimer that I myself do not identify as Latinx, Hispanic, or Latino. Yes, my last name, Villanueva, is Spanish, but I am Filipino. The Philippines was colonized by Spain for over 300 years, so hence the Spanish influence there. So in respect to your question, it's important for us to be respectful with the language and identities that we're familiar with. So when we speak of those who are Latin American or of Latin American descent, it's important that we're familiar with these descriptors that align with how folks identify in their lived experiences. And some of these group identifiers were born out of various contexts in history. So some are tied to heritage, like Hispanic. Uh, some are intended to promote gender inclusivity, like Latinx or Latine. And before getting into some more terms, just stating that Latin America has a complex history of indigenous cultures, slavery from Africa, global immigration, all with the backdrop of European colonization. And this makes it not so straightforward to describe the people of this region of the world with a single ethnic or racial category. So people in the US who have origins in a Latin American country occasionally self-identify or are referred to as Latin American, but they may prefer a different term. So If we get a little more deeper into the terms, Hispanic refers to people from Spain, a Spanish ancestry, or come from a Spanish-speaking country. So this is like an ethnicity, mainly. Uh, It's exclusionary of indigenous groups and Afro-Latinx peoples. If we look at the term Latino, Latina, this describes a male-female person of Latin American descent. And it includes countries like Brazil, Belize, Guyana, Suriname, French Guinea, those countries that don't necessarily speak Spanish or have a Spanish heritage. So it's inclusive of those folks. And to Latino and Latina, there was an effort uh, a while back. So the O and the A, the O is masculine, the A is feminine. There was an effort in written Latino, Latina, to use that A of like the at 
at sign like at gmail.com which would be a shorthand for an alternative to latino because of a lot of the default what is you would assume if someone's latino that they're male so that was an effort for more gender inclusivity to further that gender inclusivity we have lat latin x which has been around for a little over a decade now but has become more frequently used in the past several years and this recognizes folks outside of the gender binary, the male, female. So it includes trans and gender non-conforming folks of Latin American heritage. And similarly, Latine, with an E on the end, pronounced Latine, it's also an inclusive term supporting that trans, gender non-conforming people. If we go on to Afro-Latinx, Afro-Latino, Afro-Latina, then we are recognizing those folks from Latin American descent that have heritage and ancestry from Africa. And then finally, we have the indigenous groups uh, mentioned that terms like Hispanic, uh, Latino don't necessarily identify and, and include indigenous groups. So just naming indigenous recognizes that Similar to our context here in the U.S., that indigenous groups first lived on the lands that were invaded by European colonizers. And so uh, it's just we try to be as inclusive as possible. And there's so many terms. So for the sake of brevity, we, we've been saying Latin American communities and try to be as inclusive in, to the numerous identities and respectful of the histories of the Latin American continent. Yes, thank you for that breakdown. With all of these complexities and identities in mind, can you speak a little bit more about why we're talking about Latinx and Hispanic identifying communities and why this is a focus for the trainings you're all working on and specifically the podcast today? Absolutely, Tori. I'll take that one. So today we're highlighting these really important communities out of deep respect to uplift and acknowledge their histories to recognize their diversity, and also to begin dismantling any oppressive narratives, especially the ones that dominate our culture. In some recent statistics that we've gotten from the U.S. Census Bureau, we've estimated that over 60 million U.S. residents identify as Hispanic or Latin, which is about a little under 20% of our population in the United States. And so when we break that even further down, of those 60 million, nearly a quarter million live in Philadelphia, and that's about 15% of our city's population. When we think about our school district specifically, around 20% of our students identify as Hispanic or Latin, um, yet only around 3 to 4% of our teaching staff share racial identities with those students. And so we have dove into research that says that teachers having identities that resonate with our students and with the students that they're teaching really results in positive outcomes for them. And so it becomes really important that we support all teachers and staff to be cognizant of the cultures of our students. And we make that a priority in our office. And so Brian briefly mentioned our oppressive thematic ideologies in our series. We cover these topics and we really spotlight important terminology that Ryan just went over, like Latinx, Latin, Hispanic. And we also spend some time outlining how hurtful narratives about these communities definitely negatively impact our mindsets. They impact our perceptions and they ultimately impact relationships that we build with people of Latin American heritage and with our students of Latin American descent. 
And then finally, most importantly, I think something that we're really excited about in our office is that National Hispanic Heritage Month is celebrated. It begins on September 15th. It runs through October 15th, and that really recognizes and celebrates the culture, the accomplishments, the assets, the value that Hispanic, Latinx, Latin communities have really contributed in the past and also currently contribute to this nation and to our world. Great. Thank you, Sia. So since you brought up hurtful narratives, in the professional development you'll both be delivering, you talk about certain stereotypes within the community. Could you name some of those stereotypes and also explain a little bit about why they're harmful to the community at large? Absolutely. So when I think about my experiences, one of the stereotypes that I often hear in the U.S. is that Latin American immigrants are out to steal American jobs. However, this fact is not a fact. (laughs) The truth is that high rates of immigration, whether it be documented or undocumented, they actually don't increase unemployment. And in reality, it's quite the opposite. So there have been some impactful studies, one of which done by the Bell Policy Center, that examined the impact of undocumented immigrant labor specifically in Colorado. And that study found that for every job held by an undocumented immigrant, 0.8 additional jobs were created. And not only that, the money that immigrants spend on local goods and services, it really does enable existing companies to hire additional people. And so that's one example, but we discussed this, we discussed other stereotypes related to family structure, to language, as well as immigration in Latin American communities in the U.S., And these stereotypes are harmful because they really are oversimplified generalizations. They're unfair, they're untrue. And what they do when we use this language is we are contributing to a larger system of oppression that disadvantages Latin American communities in the United States. You know, when we're talking about stereotypes, and there are many when it comes to Latinos, some of the ones that I've heard, and you hear them on the news as well, which is very sad. You know, immigrants are out to steal American jobs, you know, those stereotypes. There's also like the Latino masculinity equals macho, machismo, you know, like you'll hear all these different phrases and these stereotypes. And I just feel that if that's all you're hearing on the news, that is what people then start to get, that's what gets ingrained. Like Latin American women are always at home, that they're not necessarily taken on traditional jobs. All these are stereotypes, not true. There's even the one about the Latina women and being very promiscuous and having many children. So they're out there. And these are things that we need to squash here. We need to make sure we educate our staff and educate teachers here. And let the families know we've heard all those stereotypes. We're not believing any of them. We're here to support you. What's interesting is that I'm Puerto Rican as the principal. The assistant principal is a male Mexican immigrant. He came over. He tells his story. So here are all of these leaders in the building that are Latinos themselves. And as role models, you know, paving the way that it's a good thing we didn't buy into those stereotypes or we wouldn't be in these respectful roles that we're in. The the microaggressions I know my families are feeling because they haven't changed. The microaggressions have not gone away. And then I'm going to add even the topic of colorism that happens within our own group. There's the, how dark is your skin? Is it two shades lighter? Is it two shades darker? You know, that there is that that exists within the group. 
colorism. You know, some people may not realize that racism is not always a conflict between whites and the people of color, but rather it can sometimes occur within the groups enforcing racism and discriminatory messages within themselves. So coming back to oppressive ideologies, what oppressive ideologies can come up when we talk about these communities and how do these ideologies show up in the district as well as our community at large? Happy to answer that one. Some of the ideologies of narratives uh, that appear or are put upon Latin American communities in the U.S. are things like, as Sia mentioned, oppression based on language, xenophobia, uh, exotification, or adultification of Latin American girls and women. There's a perpetual foreigner myth, which encompasses this assumption that Latin American people are not American or they're not from the U.S. So I'd like to highlight one of them, language, because it it's often a common barrier that members of these communities face in the U.S. In the school district of Philadelphia, slightly more than half of English learners speak Spanish, about 51%, and 9% speak Portuguese. And so they make up the majority of English language learners. And I just want to name that many Latin Americans in the U.S. speak English right? And we should not generalize, assume that language is a barrier for all. We highlight English learners because uh, many still face barriers and biases in our country and in our school district. So a couple examples of how that language oppression shows up in schools or school districts is that, for example, when we don't provide language services so that students and families can access resources or opportunities Another example might be, say, an educator uses a U.S. cultural reference in a lesson. They might use a a homophone. So a homophone, you know, words that sound the same but have different meanings. Think blue and blue, blue sky, the wind blew. (laughs) So that could be so confusing, right? English is so weird. So this is to say that language we use can pose barriers for students and for families who who need to complete tasks like completing forms to enroll their child in a school or attend IEP meetings. So while we know that language barriers don't appear just for Spanish or Portuguese speaking communities in the U.S., in education, it's important to remember that our schools and institutions can either reinforce or disrupt these patterns of oppression. Acknowledging this Addressing these barriers is one of the reasons we'll also be including a transcript of this podcast in Spanish. So as a school leader, being that I was just directly a part of feeling marginalized as a child growing up, raised by a Puerto Rican mom who was anti anything to do with mental health. It was a taboo topic. She didn't bring it up. I didn't realize it was affecting me the way it did affect me until we got older. But mental health is just not something the Latino community openly talks about and maybe isn't even aware that that is a need for them and their family. So I like to think that as a leader here at a school in a community similar to the one I was raised in, that I'm able to hear my family's stories and their needs and that that I'm able to direct them to get support very openly 
without judgment, without shame. The minute I hear their story, their needs, I direct them to our school counselors. Sometimes I direct them to our social worker. In our step team here at the school, we're very fortunate to have a, uh, an entire step team. And our families can get immediate supports where no one needs to know about the supports, just the family and that school team member. So it's very private, it's confidential. And we've seen a lot of families thrive after receiving these supports from our school community, our school leaders, as I mentioned, our school counselor and our step team. And they get out from under the issues they were having when they first arrived here. And I just think it helps that because I lived it myself, that I'm also able to support others. Like I could see it. Like I know what those words are and those needs are firsthand. So you've talked about the makeup of the community we're discussing today, some of the stereotypes and ideologies that come along with it, which is, I think, a really important first step for people to understand more about these oppressive ideologies. But what are some actionable steps and resources people can utilize if they want to do some more research after listening to the episode? Yeah, great question. I think one is definitely do the work. It's very important to better understand the history, the histories of Latin American community in the U.S. That not only includes oppression that we've been talking about, the different types, but also the advocacy, the contributions of those who have been instrumental in shaping this country and, and also countries worldwide. Another thing that folks can do is just get involved. There are a lot of narratives surrounding Latin American communities in the U.S., many of them are about immigration. And there are a number of really wonderful agencies that are fighting for reformed immigration policies that protect and value the rights and dignity of each person who matriculates through these systems. I'll add one more. I think one best practice is ask people how they identify. I went over a number of different group categories, such as Hispanic, Latinx, Latina, Latino, Afro-Latino, Afro-Latinx, Indigenous. So each one must be understood in their historical context. And sometimes you might not know which identity certain folks identify as or their belonging in which group category. So one great way to ensure you're being inclusive is to just ask how they identify, where they're from. What do they prefer? So there, there are many countries and cultures that fall within the categories that we group people into. So to recognize and appreciate the diversity of identities, experiences, we can ask what culture, what country, what community do you identify with? So that's what I would recommend. I really appreciate this primer for folks listening. I think this is really essential for all of us to know. But to kind of round out our conversation on a more positive and celebratory note, Sia mentioned earlier Hispanic Heritage Month is right around the corner. So what are some ways that we can recognize and celebrate Latinx and Hispanic communities in Philadelphia? We would absolutely love to highlight some notable figures from Latin American communities we see this as a very small but necessary step towards uplifting and celebrating those who identify. There are many impactful local artists, scientists, writers, athletes, and advocates that identify as members of Latin American communities in the U.S. So, for instance, Kiera 
Alegria Udes, an American playwright, producer. She's also a lyricist and essayist who graduated from Central High School and has been involved in many impactful productions and publications. We'd also like to highlight Gloria Casares. She was an American civil rights leader and LGBT activist in Philadelphia, who served as Philadelphia's first director of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender affairs. And then also Helen Ubinas, who writes for The Inquirer. We have Will Gonzalez, who runs a coalition of Latino community-based organizations in Philadelphia. Knowing, connecting with, and advocating for this learning to truly be embedded into our curriculum and celebrated in our city is a very important step. And then further, there are a lot of resources online. We ask that folks be curious and that they seek out and be intentional about wanting to learn and grow. We always say that opening our eyes to different people also opens our eyes to different ways of seeing the world. We know that the internet is a really great place to start and that there are a lot of valuable resources, books, podcasts, documentaries, and other resources available to be explored. The school district also provides resources for Spanish-speaking families, speakers of any language, really. So two resources to highlight are multilingual curriculum and programs and the Multilingual Assessment Center, which helps students and families from immigrant and refugee communities navigate the enrollment and assessment processes. So since you mentioned Gloria Casares, I would love to ask Principal Balbuena if you would mind telling us a little bit more about who she is and also why your school was recently named after her. We asked families, teachers, staff, district personnel, stakeholders, give us names of what our school should be named after. Who or what? Because it didn't have to be a person. It could have been anything else. And when we put out that survey, the names that were coming in, we were flooded with great names, great, great suggestions. We had a name-changing council that came together. And so from this long list of names, it started to get tailored down. Gloria's name was a name that came as one of our top four. And she received 46% of the votes. So of the over 600 votes that were cast, she received 46% of them. And most of the votes came from students, staff, just amazing, amazing. So who was she? She represented, she was an advocate. She wanted her Latino community to be heard, to be seen. She was also an LGBTQ herself. I'm looking at her placard, which is stationed outside of City Hall. And right above the marker is the pride flag. Her pride marker reads like this, Latina lesbian civil rights leader. Gasares started her career as an activist fighting for economic justice, welfare rights, and affordable housing. That's what she started fighting for, for her community. She was just fearless. She went through a lot, you know, and then her last five years, she ultimately succumbed to breast cancer. I just wish I would have met her. I'm really proud of the work she did. We're working on the curriculum to teach our students and our families who Gloria was and what she stood for. So that's work that we still have ahead of us. She just did so much to support her community. She was also a student here at this school when it was Sheridan. She attended here kindergarten, first and second grade. So she's an alum. So just so many things to be excited about. And my hope is that in educating our students, our staff, and our parents 
who she was, what she represented, that they also opened their horizon, their mindsets, and that we do need to include everyone in this world versus excluding them. That's what this school represents. Well, thank you so much for such an enlightening conversation. School District of Philadelphia staff should look forward to training opportunities with C and Ryan, as well as the rest of our equity training specialists who you'll hear from in future episodes. Check out more episodes of Equity Is. We have the second part of our transitional mentoring program episode releasing later this month and another equity snapshot episode discussing the gender binary and socialization of gender norms and sexual orientation in October in honor of LGBTQ Heritage Month. So look forward to those. Thanks for listening.